This just in, it's officially fall, and that means a lot of things to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. The leaves are changing colors. It's time to break out the pumpkins, Mm -hmm. break out the football. And and most importantly, break out the truly hard seltzer. See, truly has only 100 calories, but has 5% ABV and only one gram of sugars per container. It's the can't-miss drink of the season, so try truly hard seltzer today. Truly. Drink what you truly want. Hello, Future Links. This is Ken. And this is John. We're going to take a second here before the show begins to celebrate the holiday winter solta- solstice season. Mm-hmm. The solstice. The solstice, we call it. It's like the Soviets. The poultice. If you put a poultice on a Soviet because he's turning red, it's a solstice. Uh, just to mention that uh, with the advent of the holiday season in late November 2019. I like how you threw advent in there. That's nice. Yeah, it's yeah. just a lot of just a lot of subtle Christianity mm-hmm. every time I talk. <laughs> I'm offended by the Starbucks cups that don't yeah. have a manger on them. Every day I open a little door in Ken <laughs> and I get another tiny piece of chocolate. Uh, you know, we we were so thankful for your support around the Thanksgiving season that we uh, after months of putting it off, we finally rolled out a series of delightful benefits and rewards for those who have supported the show. We've been we've been so grateful uh, for the Patreon support of our program. It has eased our transition away from our former corporate masters and made us feel like independent operators and futurelings ourselves. And so we wanted to give back in this time of giving and actually have uh, Patreon levels that have different uh, rewards. So give yourself the gift of perks this holiday season. What are some of our perks, Ken? Well, anybody who donates at any of the Patreon tiers receives probably the main perk, which is a monthly omnibus episode of Addenda Mm. that goes reader feedback, pointing out uh, corrections and additions and addictions, possibly. A lot of presentlings have information they'd like to share with us about various topics. Sometimes it's because they live in the town that we discussed. Sometimes it's because they are uh, lapidiatrists. If there's one thing all omnibus listeners have in common, it's they have information to share. <laughs> so we uh, and we wanted to make sure that one in the time capsule. That's as well. right. That's right. We're going to cover cover all the bases, and so it's a it's a it's a fun listen, a fascinating listen. A new monthly episode uh, uh, available to all our donors at higher donation levels. You get access to a, a video, a image archive. Um, show notes and uh, mailbag oddities and whatnot. You're going to be astonished by the difference between our show notes. Mine are in pencil and John's are in ink. That's, yeah, basically it. That's the main Ken's are legible and mine are not. John's have pentagrams on them. often do. (laughs) Uh, At even higher tiers, you can get an autographed copy of those show notes uh, mailed to you uh, or even uh, the ability to choose a show topic and Rocket your preferred omnibus idea to the top of the queue. Yeah, we're going to try and make that as difficult as possible uh, <laughs> for you to achieve, but it is a perk. It may be collaborative if your idea is terrible or offensive, uh, and uh, or even uh, video chats with the two of us. So go to patreon.com slash omnibusproject, see what tempts you, what tickles your fancy, mm, what mm. craveable new benefits there are for mm. you to enjoy. Crave. Crave. My favorite word. Moist. Happy holidays, everyone. Yes. And, uh...
receiving this message. We are Ken Jennings and John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 737.PR3118, certificate number 46507. Ada Lovelace. So what does a basic program look like? I've put a very short program into the computer, and then I've asked the computer to list all the instructions in that program. The 10, 15, 20, up to the number 40 are what are called line numbers, because each of these is one line in our basic program. And that's the first rule. Every line in our program must have a number. You're, you're a computer programmer, or you were. I was. What kind of computer programmer were you? This is how you got your start. Lazy, uh-huh. reluctant. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, I, uh, I kind of liked the puzzle solving aspect of it the idea that every day you could just go into a computer and try to trick it into doing a thing by thinking about a task in a smarter or more elegant way did you did you become a computer programmer because it just seemed like a good job for a young guy i mean what what was yeah. it that drew you to it other than puzzle solving was that was that just it that's kind of what i told myself i mean really it was i mean i was an english major in college who really suddenly was graduating and engaged and had no way to pay the rent. Right. And my friend had an internet startup because it was 1999 and everybody had an internet startup. Uh, but so it really was. Side note, th- th- I did not have an internet startup. And we've talked about this. You were left behind. <laughs> I was. Well, no, the the bubble collaped a year or two later. So F- Futurelings will think left behind is a reference to the rapture that happened sometime between now and then. You all remember when I disappeared and John's kept doing the show alone, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. The Futurelings are what, what evolved on Earth after the righteous were raptured. Are you going to have to find some second sinner to, to do omnibus with mm, yeah. after, after I get raptured? I wonder who I'll find. <laughs> some octopus. Uh, so it really was just like, I'm a grown-up now. Grown-ups need grown-up jobs. Computers, because I was a child of the early 80s right. when we everybody had their little TRS-80 or their Apple II at home. And you, you said the word computer... And that alerted the weird Alexa over there to communicate with us. Alexa wants to play something. Well, so so there was a there. There's a little boy who lives across the street who realized we had an Alexa, and then would come over to play. 
and would just torment us by playing this terrible pop music, you know, asking her to do things. And all of a sudden the whole, the whole house would erupt in some chorus of some, you know, modern pop song. And so we changed the name of the device from, because they don't allow you to change the name to too many things. You can't call it, you you can't call it like Barbara. What are they worried about? Well, that, that you would call it by a competitor's name, or you would call it by a name demeaning to women? Yeah, or no? I think I think it is that you would call it some uh, you'd call it some swear words. I certainly would, but they only allow you to change it to. You can't tell me what you changed it to, or she'll start talking to us. Well, no. What I changed it to is the word that we're describing. C O M P U T E R. What Captain Kirk? I like how we have to spell it out loud, but it's not our kids we're trying to keep knowledge from. It's from it's this our device. Stupid, stupid device. So anytime you absentmindedly drop the word into conversation, which happens fairly regularly, she will come alive and start talking to you. And we are we suspect that she has ordered certain products uh, and sent them to the house because we keep getting really weird mail from Amazon things we didn't order. So am I going to have to say the C word every time we talk about you know what? I don't know. It's really awful. Let's see what happens if I just talk about computers. Okay. Oh no, she didn't. She didn't light up that time. But I guess if I say if I talk about how when I was a kid and we had a very early personal computer, like we were hobbyists about it and really loved it. No, no, no. You got away with it. So did you program in? uh, Did you program your Apple IIe or your TRS eighty? Did you use a a, a cassette tape? Memory system. We had an Apple II with a cassette tape. What was your first computer? It was a IBM 64K two disk drives. Uh, it was the big, you know, it was the big mama of the time. The AT or XT? No, or it was a... before all that. Oh, it was really? the IBM PC. Oh, right. The they first just had the PC. Yeah, the first one. And, um, or not, I mean, you know, the first one from IBM responding to the Apple IIe. And uh, my mom, of course, was a computer programmer and um, worked on mainframe computers. And so she thought we needed one of these at home, but she had zero interest in it because the computer she had at work was a ma- you know, a mainframe that was connected to a to an area-wide network and she could do all these amazing things on it. And this thing just seemed like a She could turn on air raid sirens. Yeah. And I was not especially interested in it until we got WordStar, which was you know, a, a, a early word processor. A word processor, and I did learn all the WordStar commands, and I would sit and and write stories. You know, just uh, I really enjoyed it as a typewriter. But in terms of sitting and sitting like my friends and kind of working out some programs in BASIC, I just couldn't have been less interested. There was a funny thing where you would get computer magazines, and they would have the full text of computer programs, right. and it PC would be like, World. and it would be like, you know, here in Byte Magazine, this we've this month we've got the code for a little billiards game, or uh, this computer that'll calculate pi. Or um, and or, so you or just sit and type it in. Yeah, this thing that simulates a mortgage calculator, and you would literally sit and type it in. Yeah, it was a hard copy, and so uh, I, me and my dad would often do this. He he would actually code. He had books and he had learned basic, and he he knew about peek and poke and all these odd things, and uh. But when we were reading it out of magazines, often it would just be me dictating. Like yeah. he'd be like, "Hey, help me out," and I'd sit down for a while and be like. Go sub uh, fifteen hundred. Uh, <laughs> right. If you know, and and you you kind of I I would even though I wasn't really thinking much about it, I was just kind of a reverse stenographer. I, I was kind of seeing the structure of it, and you know, and he would explain to me what the different subroutines were going to do. 
I did two. I wrote two programs. One of them was a random, uh, it would generate random segments of line. So it would start on one side of the screen or somewhere and it would put a little line and then next to it, it would put another, uh, a line at a different orientation and it would create this sort of snake that, uh, that moved around the screen, this, this segmented sort of random chain of line segments. And were you copying this from PC magazine or did you actually write this? I didn't write it. It was something I found. Yeah. Some like, Hey, check it out. This is crazy. And then I wrote uh, an addenda to it that made a, that was a random tone generator. So this little, this little line would go all around the screen and I would run it. And be, I was very impressed with myself that I made this. This is like your this. secret origin as a musician. You were, you were into electronica. But how many times can you run that before you're like, yeah, great? And what you know, I wasn't prepared to to go the next step and make the line generator do anything or the sound generator. I mean, a lot of these things about these computers is they didn't really do anything. Right. You know, there were better games in every arcade, so you didn't really hang out at home and play games. The graphics packages were lousy. The sound was lousy. Like, All those narrative games, uh, like Zork, uh, Zork, or whatever, I, I they were so dumb or they were so easy to defeat. Oh, that not I couldn't to get me. Into them. Like I played those for like weeks. You did, yeah. And there were, we didn't have the answers. Today you can just. You could look up the answers to all the puzzles, but me and all my friends would just bash our heads against these games <laughs> in high school. For I remember my friend calling me, like back then you had to call someone's landline, right. and saying, I just got the Babblefish in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And we had been trying for weeks to get the Babblefish. Nice. Uh, yeah. But I'm talking about like Oregon Trail or whatever. Oh, you know? right. Uh, but did it occur to you or in the process of, of, of learning computer programming? I mean, I, when I think of the the personal computer, like talking to my mom about computers, we have this, we have this timeline of computers that starts about world war two, right? The original ENIAC big room sized, you know, that ran, ran on punch cards that used two inch magnetic tape, tape reels that were originally tubed and then became transistorized flashing lights. And then when we think about personal computers arriving in the 1970s, and we, we still lionize those original pioneers of uh, you know of home computing and the and what became the kind of explosion of computing, but the origins of computers start a lot earlier, uh, and 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 they were originally a kind of I mean if you think about the the initial impulse to make a computer as a as a machine to do computation i mean they go back even to the greeks the little um the little sort of mechanistic boxes what's the one that they found under the mediterranean the rusted it's got one? a it's got a terrible long name yeah, like the, the necronomicon right, or the gaiabera deuterocanonic the... yeah it's something like that but yeah, it, it's this kind of very intricate brass machine where nobody can quite tell what it does, but clearly just by mechanistically moving its parts, it could kind of do some kind of calculation. Right. And usually the seasons it, yeah, or, or something. The, the sky, right? Yeah. It was always uh, Na- navigation. Trying to figure out what, what the constellations were gonna say about our love life. No, no, no. It wasn't it was it was more interesting than that, but 
But um, not to me. I'm a Scorpio. Like, are you? Yeah, that's. Are you a Scorpio? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was gonna say, you don't seem like a Scorpio. I'm a I'm a Gemini. Yeah, that's more. And like I'm a it. pretty classic. That's more like it. Gemini. It's called the Antikythera mechanism. Antikythera, right? And I'm sure there were plenty of futurelings who have reconstructed an Antikythera, and they realized it was truly a. a a genius device, right? Maybe, maybe it was a doomsday device. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to 3D print one just in case. I don't. I don't know what. what I don't want to tempt fate. But really, it was it was the um, the sort of late 18th century, early 19th century explosion of science and uh, and natural sciences, but also political science and uh, and. The first elements of mass production and industrial Yeah, you need a certain level of, of uh, sophistication of just the kind of clockwork you can make to even dream that a machine could do anything interesting. Yeah, that's right. If you the, can't machine the parts. To, to make a thing that has tolerances that, uh, that enable you to have gears upon gears upon gears, mm-hmm. you have to already have a certain amount of uh, uh, high technology. But at this point in time, right, the very, very early, uh, early 19th century – there was a tremendous, um, I mean, what we what we call the Enlightenment or the 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 later Enlightenment, where science was, and we've talked about it many times on the Omnibus. Science was still sort of the province of the aristocratic class, people with free time. Yeah, it was a it was a diversion, but also this was an era where uh, where education had had uh, proliferated to the degree that. You could have polymathic aristocrats that had that had an understanding of uh, higher math, uh, that had an understanding of the natural world. Obviously, this is pre-Darwin. Because we but, had just surpassed the Greeks and Romans. So right. back then, if you just read what survived of the Greeks and Romans, you were pretty much, even though it was thousand, more, 2,000 years old, you were still up to speed on architecture and botany and everything. Right. But here we were now at uh, 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 the threshold of a new world and developing – steam engine, developing manufacturing, but also developing theories of government, theories of uh, mass production, economic theories, mm-hmm. and a lot of philosophy. Um, and what, what went along with that was a lot of curiosity about the mechanistic nature of nature, um, how math seemed to be able to Describe natural processes. The movement of the spheres. That's right. Even, you know, Copernicus and Kepler and, and Newton talking about how you could use very simple math to explain how objects are going to move or not. And, and the clockwork universe uh, gave us a glimpse of, of God. Yeah, you know? yeah, you see the hand of God. And I guess that's why that's why deism catches on there, mm-hmm. because it it, it, it uh it's not heretical. It continues the thread of Christianity, but it tempers it with this new idea that, uh, well, there's a God very, set it in motion. Yeah, there's a very simple set of, of scientific rules here. So you got to have both. Right. God creates the rules. The rules create the universe. But this God isn't, he's not meddling necessarily. No, because right. that doesn't make sense. We've seen that he doesn't. Like the, the, it's not an invisible hand keeping the moon circling the earth anymore. The sun <laughs> right. is no longer a chariot. An equation is the chariot. He has no longer, or he doesn't appear in bushes as much <laughs> as he once did. Which in generally is good. Yeah. You don't want to see an old bearded man in a bush if no. you're going for a walk. Agreed. Nothing good ever happens. Especially not one who is so, who is burning so brightly as to set the bush on fire. Yeah, really. I, when I go for a walk, I do not want to see any bearded man on fire. But this this era... 
was before a time when the the metaphysical, which also was, as you suggest, um, like having a kind of uh, like a, a resurgence that was based in a, an incomplete knowledge of science, but also a, a connectivity between what seemed poetical, what seemed um, uh, the metaphorical, and what could be described as as demonstrable, repeatable science. A lot of the scientific method hadn't been developed quite yet, and there was a lot of uh, anecdote, a lot of sense that if, if that what you perceived was um, was actual. It was you know sort of Descartesian, Kantian period when it it uh, we had not yet developed an idea that subjectivity was was uh, perhaps not dependable right that your personal your personal experience of a thing did not necessarily denote a truth yeah we weren't to modernism and postmodernism yet right today we think about like these kind of romantic impulses is very much at odds with the scientific rational mind and i that's probably just an effective the way people specialize today or the, maybe the fact that many people are not good at both but back then, I guess they both had a, a common origin. Like, it was all coming out of nature, right? right? You would look at nature, and nature could make you write a poem about the swelling deep, or nature could make you write a theory or an equation about why the, the plants are shaped the way they are or why the water moves away the way it does. Yeah, the But it's the same thing. It's the same awe at its base. The Romantic era didn't make these distinctions, and I, I think there are plenty of people these days who would argue that the hard separation between the sciences and the and the more romantic pursuits is in, in, in itself an affectation, an affectation of our time. But at the dawn of, of this scientific era, the romantic aspect of it was not just uh, – not just that the worlds hadn't deviated yet, but they were all the province of this aristocratic class that had the that had the leisure both to write poems and also learn math and science. Yeah, I bet today obsession is the enemy of this. You know, you, these people who are writing facial recognition algorithms or whatever, like if you ask them what they think about the societal impact of that, that's that's not what they're interested in. Right. They are uh, just laser-like focused on making it work a little bit better or, you know, the they're just obsessed with the algorithm itself. And in the early 19th century, that would have been un, – uh, it was unknown or unknowable. Of course, sure. if you were writing a facial recognition software, it would be hopefully – in the service of an advance of human culture. That's the number and, one thing you're thinking about is, right. is what, what you are, what dream you are bringing forth. Right. And how are we making an unprecedented world of, in, in a lot of cases, economic opportunity, democracy, uh, a, 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 a social opportunity. Uh, these were notions that were very popular. And, and again, this is coming from a white moneyed class that is – that sees it as their uh, their obligation and also their I mean this is this is a a pursuit of people that uh, just a few decades earlier would have been uh, would have been obsessed with matters of the court 
yeah. right? That would have been just sort of dancing and fritting away their their hours, not even designing gardens yet. But now we're going to push the species forward. Right. Yeah. And so uh, enters in this very incestuous, and, uh, and we'll get to that in a minute, even literally incestuous, but very incestuous community of aristocratic uh Brits, basically, but well, uh, yeah, Britons, who constituted the the baronetcy and the the the, the elegant class, the, the peerage. The, that's right, the, the peerage. They're aristocrats, and one of the most famous, and arguably the most famous romantic of his era was Lord Byron, who was famous and still famous to this day as a poet, but also Personally, a kind of blackguard, uh, a, a dangerous, you know, the Jim Morrison of his time. Yeah, I think we today, you may know him from such works as She Walks in Beauty Like the Night. You know, he's just a boring name on a page, he's like a Keats or a, a Wordsworth. Um, but I, I feel like I've read that he was, at the time, he was essentially the first kind of celebrity. Yeah. The first kind of romantic idol where uh, even if you'd never met him, people far and wide would would know about his name and chat about his exploits. And the way we do today about the thousands of celebrities we gossip about, but there was no celebrity culture then. No, and it had, and he had elements of uh, he, you know, he decamped to fight in the Greek War of Independence. He was a rakish figure, but also wrote, you know, this sort of turgid poetry. But also was um, he was a celebrity in that he had multiple sex scandals and was known to be dangerous and and um, bad. I mean, he was the first person maybe that the word bad was used as a compliment or as a, <laughs> right. as a sideways compliment. He invented the anti-hero. He did. I mean, it's, it's weird. To, I mean, we're the ones living in the weird time where we know about the sex lives of thousands of people we will never meet. Mm-hmm. He might have been the first person ever to have more than... 50 people know about his sex life. Well, and uh, and the first person uh, to be a scandalously bisexual ah, right. uh, at a time when bisexuality was a crime. He put the bi back in Byron. And this, oof, oh, let me, just, let me just take a moment to catch my breath. He wasn't, he wasn't George Gordon, Lord Hetero Ron. Oof. <laughs> are you, you bi-punphobic? Uh, I'm going to just have to get sit, get back in my chair. No, he is a queer icon. That's true. Yeah, and 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 an Oscar Wilde figure before Oscar Wilde. Right? And and after which Oscar Wilde I think modeled aspects of himself, right? Byron was the I'll, I'll be the Victorian yeah, bad boy. That's right, I'll just be model. so over the top nobody can call me on it. Hey there, it's Jonathan Strickland from Tech Stuff. Be sure to tune in to a very special episode of Tech Stuff that was recorded inside a Mazda CX-30 at the LA Auto Show, where I discuss all the ins and outs of human-centric design. While you're listening, be sure to check out the first-ever CX-30 at MazdaUSA.com iHeart, or better yet, to see the entire Mazda vehicle lineup, visit your local area Mazda dealer today. Byron was an aristocrat, and he married uh, he married his wife Anne, uh, who uh, universally known as Lady Byron throughout her life. Uh, she was a scientist, uh, and she was a scientist. Well, what's curious about this era is that it was 
surprisingly um, open to aristocratic women. I guess if everybody's an amateur, then that's you know, right. Women with free time to read and chat is perfect. And this was at a time when uh, when educating women became sort of a fashion among aristocrats. Uh, we we did an early episode of the Omnibus on the dinosaur collector Mary Anning. Mary Anning, who was not an aristocrat, and so she had uh, a difficult time being accepted as a scientist. But as we discussed then, a lot of that was a class issue. Um, she was, you know, she was never accepted in the hallowed halls. Uh, but partly it was that unless you were an aristocrat, no one would consider your work. It was. Is sort of beneath their dignity. I guess it, it's, it was probably a status symbol. I mean, you know, this was not an egalitarian time. Wives were still thought of as kind of the property and accoutrement of their of their husband. But I guess if you have an, a, an educated, accomplished, sophisticated wife, what you're saying is, I can afford to lead such a life that even my wife is, uh, you know, has the uh, free time to pursue these interests. Look how sophisticated she is. You know, this this reflects glory on the husband, I guess. Well, surprisingly, uh, a, a lot of that, I mean, of course, that inequality is written into the law, but yeah. socially, it really wasn't uh, a matter so much of, um, you know, we, we have a tendency in the late 20th century, earlier 21st century to imagine that everything before the dawn of women's rights, the women's rights movement in the mid-60s was sort of uniformly a... Uh, you know, Neanderthal. Uh, yeah, back to the dawn of time, women were treated the same way the whole time. But in, in actual it's, fact, it's a five thousand year sausage fest. And yeah, you're, and you're saying that's not true. In actual fact, there was a lot of egalitarianism, and because because many of these women, at least in this culture, were also titled women of their own. Right? They were. They had money. Uh, well, maybe they couldn't inherit, but oh, they could. They in, they inherited titles and money. Right? There were many duchesses, and uh, that that ended up being the. The um, the holder of the title. It wasn't it it wasn't strictly that uh, that only the male heir inherited the title, and so women had money of their own and they had titles of their own and they were also you know surprisingly liberated. They were not educated at Cambridge, but as we'll see, uh, Cambridge dons were hired as tutors for mm. the the wealthy daughters of of major right. figures. If you're wealthy and titled, you're above Cambridge, yeah, right? Like you, right. You, you get the privileges you want. Uh, and that's, uh, Cambridge is a little middle class. So we often see, like, for instance, if you watch the miniseries, The Crown, we see Queen Elizabeth very specifically being denied a proper education uh, because she was considered as the queen above uh, a kind, or, or, or that she should be protected from the world of the base world of scientific right. knowledge. That's for people who who need degrees, right? You Although don't need the that. Ki- the king would would be receiving that education, uh, uh, but the but the queen was excluded from it. But that was that was uh, in large measure because of the expectation of her role as queen. But her but many of her peers would have had, and particularly in the beginning of the 19th century, would have had access to an education. Um, and so in the case of Lady Byron, who was born Anna Isabella, so she was, her father, um, Anne's father was Lord Wentworth, who was a viscount and a baron, 
And when he died, she and her brother jointly inherited his uh, baronetage, and she became um, she became a baroness. Like she was, she was her own uh, very individual uh, sort of powerhouse. And her father had secured for her a pretty extensive education from a Cambridge Don, and she naturally took to science and mathematics and became uh, became kind of known at least her husband gave her the nickname the princess of parallelograms <laughs> so what? she, she uh, that's the least romantic thing i've ever heard i know the, she the princess of parallelograms she like clearly bored her husband and didn't didn't adhere to the idea of a of a yeah, it was a little notable that she was more into geometry than than embroidery and uh, and some of these other things. But a little notable, but there were many many women of the time that that I think we and we talked about this quite a bit that they are absent from the pantheon because there wasn't a way of that because they didn't achieve the stature they weren't they weren't uh welcomed in all they couldn't, the halls yeah they couldn't come to the royal society right so whatever work they did they had no support structure for um although a, a woman by the name of Mary Somerville who will who re, will return to in a minute was a similar sort of polymathic mathematician who was uh the first the first English member or the first female English member of the Royal Astronomical Society. And that's when 19th century? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Or fairly early in the 19th century um, or mid 19th century. I assume it's like the situation with your mom's era of computer programmers where it had not yet become stereotypically male, you know, right. just through a cultural accident. Um, the, the division had not yet become, this is prestigious work and therefore it should be masculine work. In particular, because the, because the overlap between mathematics and romantic poetry was still not uh, clearly delineated. Right. I mean, science was still called natural history or, or some natural philosophy. You know, they, they would give it names like that. It, it had not been ghettoized yet. It was just seen as part of understanding the world, including the natural world. Of course, you'd be interested in parallelograms and, and, uh, uh, rocks and butterflies. Yeah, well, and and, and um, in the case of Anne, she kind of uh, she resisted being um, being sidelined within her own family and her culture by becoming a very strict, uh, prim religious woman who brooked no no monkey business uh, on the part of. You know, she 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 solidified herself, I think, and and created uh, an edifice around her that enabled her to be mathematical and educated and precise. Because so she, she's not just a parallelogram; she's no. a, she's a real square. Yeah, she. Oh, oh, you're just really putting me on the floor today. Yeah, I found an angle. Yeah, that's oh, I she. You know, I didn't used to. I didn't used to acknowledge all of that kind of talk from you. But it was to, probably better. But today I'm allowing it and I don't I don't I don't know what what's happened to me. Yeah. Maybe I didn't have that extra cup of coffee. You used to hate the kind of oh oh <laughs> come on. Oh no. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't give you the satisfaction. You know what it was? I wouldn't give the futurelings the satisfaction. That's true. And they, you know, they they We need you need more contempt for your audience, I think. <laughs> it's the secret of success. It's mystique. 
But perhaps, um, perhaps predictably, uh, uh, Annabelle, or I'm sorry, Annabella, I guess was her, her full name. Short for Anne Isabella. Anne Isabella. Yeah. Um, Portmanteau. Uh, she fell in love with Lord Byron, who even then was, was well known within their circles as a, as a, He's a scoundrel. A, a rakish scoundrel. It's Princess Leia and Han Solo. And she fell in love with him partly because she believed that she had a duty to reform him. He, oh, boy. That. He, he met her at court and, uh, and was taken by her intelligence and obviously by her unapproachability, proposed to her. She rejected him, uh, and they continued a correspondence. And by all accounts, in spite of her religiosity and her— her prim manner and des- desire to reform him, she actually fell in love with him and was really taken by him and swept off her feet by his, well, uh, probably by his prodigious intelligence. And also, I mean, who can resist a, a bad boy? Uh, uh, that's right. And a particularly like a, a swarthy and swaggering bad boy. I'm looking boy. at pictures of him. He's very handsome. He has like kind of a matinee idol's mustache in some of these. He's extremely handsome. And uh, and she is uh, also, you know, a, a beauty of her time. And they marry, but the marriage is uh, is sort of fractured from the beginning. And partly Byron's fame and his romantic energy was was interthreaded with, or rather, I guess you could just say threaded, because the inter is implied. You can't thread just one thing; it wouldn't be a thread. <laughs> Uh, is threaded with suggestions that he is unstable, mentally unstable, uh, verging on insanity, and perhaps mad. Is that true? Or is it just his romantic artist's fever, or does it come from something we would diagnose today? Well, one wonders. And I think uh, we see often, particularly in young romantics, a tendency toward the histrionic that looks like madness and is intended to look like madness, but really is a form of... uh, uh, artistic sort of uh, indulgence and affectation. I have a 13 year old daughter and I still cannot tell on a day to day basis. Yeah. Whether she's what is, what is actual sadness or, or anxiety or instability versus uh, just the, the allure of, uh, of having that, that pose and throwing yourself into it. Well, Byron does not die of suicide. He dies of, of disease in the, in the course of fighting a war. Um, but he, but he threatens suicide. It's uh, the the women in his life and the the culture around him um, believes that he's certainly capable of it. But with Annabelle, he has a daughter, a, a daughter that he names or nicknames Ada. Now Ada is a significant um, name for Byron because he is reputedly having a long-standing affair with his half-sister. Uh, Whoa. The, There's very few things that are equally shocking in our age and his, but that would be one of them. The daughter of his father uh, with with a second wife or with a later okay, wife. Okay, it's, it's not a stepsister. There, no, it's a half-sister. There's a significant blood relation. They here. are sister and the, brother. The Icelandic app would tell Byron not to ask her to dance. And they don't know each other. They weren't raised together. They didn't meet until they were both uh, in adulthood. And they met, you know, again, within the context of courtly uh, dance and began a letter writing relationship that progressed into 
a love relationship and one that I think Byron credited as the as the significant one of his life. She was married, but oh. but they were carrying on a love affair. Now this was an era when incest, by which I mean, and by which they meant, uh, well, by which I mean marriage to cousins. Incest was not disallowed. It's com- commonplace, right? In fact, commonplace, right? And Dar- encouraged. Darwin even. and Queen Victoria married their cousins. Lots of people married their cousins. But incest with a sibling, even a half sibling, was absolutely illegal and and just as scandalous. Maybe not as scandalous as it would be today, where it would be unheard of, but scandalous. And for good for good reason. For good reason. Uh, right. I mean, By- Byron not being raised with her doesn't have the kind of incest taboo that might keep you or I from dating a sibling. But even so, uh, I guess the ki- it would be problematic for the kids. Right, right. And, and I mean, if you're looking for scandal that would allow you to truly censure Byron rather than – I mean, he's a scandalous figure and, and, and within their culture, there are a lot of people who, are, uh, who swoon over him, but a lot who truly disapprove of him. And if you think about what happened to Oscar Wilde – imprisoned for sodomy. He thought he was impenetrable and all it took was one powerful person to get mad at him. That's right. Uh, and that could all change here for Byron if, if people actually start taking seriously what he's doing with every chambermaid. Yeah. And, and, uh, and yeah, exactly. Truly, to, truly vulnerable to, to conditions. Um, and he, with, uh, with Augusta Lee, who was his, his half sister and, and paramour, uh, pretty universally acknowledged had a daughter. Oh, and she did was. Did she have three heads or anything? She did not. And in fact, he said when the and and one of the pieces of evidence that um, that the daughter was his uh, when she was born, he went to visit her. Even she was married, and this was not her first child. She'd already had two children by her husband who was kind of regarded as a foolish cuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Byron went to see the child after she was born, and his quote was, um, I can tell you that the child is not an ape, and if it is, that must be my fault. Meaning that the, that the, the kid didn't suffer any right. ill effects from, from the incestuous relationship. Did the child have like a mustache and a turban? Was it clearly Byron's child? Like, did everybody know about this? Yeah, what did Anne think about this? Well, um... So he, this was this was prior to being married to Anne. Oh, okay. Um, but when uh, but when his and Anne's relationship started to disintegrate, she, uh, she because one of the laws that very definitely favored the male over the female during this period was in the event of the dissolution of a marriage, the uh, the right to the children belonged to the father. It was. It was, um, I think, widely held that the father could provide for them and provide an education, and it wasn't understood that a mother's love was was the most significant factor in a in a happy it's baby. The opposite of today's custody tradition, right? Um, but but uh, but Anne, in the in the in the course of the dissolution of their marriage, which happened almost immediately, right? They were only really together for a year. And it was a, a tempestuous year. Uh, their daughter Ada was born. Byron named her Ada after Augusta, 
his half sister is is Ada named is Ada short for Augusta or something? It is. Oh, okay. Um, it's, it's not really. I mean, there's no D. Where are you getting the D from, Lord Byron? Well, uh, some some wordsmith you are. Yeah. Well, I mean, her name was. I guess I guess Ada was her middle name. Oh, so she, she was actually she, Augusta Ada Lovelace. Augusta Ada. Hmm. So she went by Ada. But that is, um, you know, f- I think I- I'm scandalized by the can, can idea. Can you imagine that naming your legitimate child after the after your half sister with, with whom, whom you have an illegitimate child? Yeah, I mean, switch the names for crying right. out loud. It's only polite. Well, Byron abandoned his family, his young daughter, and uh, and his and his wife Anne uh, within sort of within days of Anne's birth and, or within, I'm sorry, days of Ada's birth and eventually under threat from Anne of being exposed, you know, because Anne was, was filling the, the sort of gossip space with the suggestion that, that Byron was a, an incestor. What would, what would you? What's the word that he was an incestuizer? In, oh, that's true. There's no noun. I can't think what a of shame. one. Insexual. Incestual. <laughs> he was an insect. Uh, well, so so that suggestion, um, and I think, and Byron's instability and his maybe hanky clutching tendency to resort to the idea that he was too crazy rather than. Uh, than to pick up his responsibilities. Hey, it's me. I'm Byron. Um, I can run out on my three day old child. He left. Uh, he left and did not contest the um, the what wh- wh- what is the term the not the ownership of the child the cu- custody the, the custody. Thank you. That's the word. And so so he he just disappeared and and uh, Anne raised the child. He disappeared and decamped to Greece. Anne raised the child. Greece was the big cause at the time. Like yeah. in the early 20th century, you would have gone to fight in the Spanish Civil War, but this was the this is what good romantics did. They well, tried because, to free Greece from the Turks. Yeah, that's right. The Greeks were were uh, were fighting for independence from the Turks, and it was you know it still had the the kind of uh, tinge of a crusade, right? The Greeks being Christian and the Turks being Muslim. It was a place that you could go as a young. A uh, young uh, English Christian and kind of fight a, we a noble. We don't have that battle. anymore. Oh no! Like we have, we have like we have those four or five guys that joined the Taliban. Yeah, but we don't have people going. I mean, I guess you could just go to the mall and and join the Marines. Well, that's the thing. We do have it in the sense that all of our military misadventures are still fighting the the, the Muslims. <laughs> right, but, <laughs> right. But I'm saying Lord Byron did not join the king's troops. You know, he went overseas to have some exotic soldier of fortune experience. Yeah, he he joined. It would be the equivalent of going to join the Iraqi army. Although, no, it wouldn't no, be. It, it would be the equivalent of going to nah, join like, the Greek army. Like, Who are the Christians fighting the Muslims? Well, what was that the last us? time we even had something like that? All those, all those kind of. Quasi racist guys going to Rhodesia in the eighties. Is that is that the last time we had? Oh that? no! You know what it would be? It would be uh, like a, like if you went to uh, to join the IDF. If you went to join the Israeli Defense Forces, you would be kind of a kind of joining a uh, non-Muslim regional army to fight 
but they're not really fighting. I'm not just looking for the anti-Muslim angle, right? Although that, although that is part of it. Like this is just, like, does Byron even care about Allah? No, no. He, he just wants to be in the cool war that all the young people are fighting someplace cool. I guess. I guess you, today you just go and join Greenpeace, or no? They go to San Francisco and fight for rent control. <laughs> That's an afternoon. <laughs> like you can you can have brunch, do the women's march, and have dinner. That's not right. the same as going to Greece. No, I don't think that the moneyed classes put themselves in harm's way the way they did. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the uh, notable example being uh, the younger of the two sires of Lady Di did join the the Royal Marines or whatever, freaked and, people out, and went and fought a you know flew a helicopter in the in the wars there. But it isn't. It isn't the same. You didn't have to prove yourself, or you don't have to prove yourself now by, as an aristocrat, by going to war. Maybe video games fixed this. It's all Ada Lovelace's fault. Like hmm. today, if you just play Call of Duty all night and you don't have that little urge when you're in your twenties and angry to to go to a foreign climb and shoot people. Yeah, maybe not. Well, so Ada was raised by her mother, very definitely. Uh, well, she was given a, a mathematical and scientific education and raised in a very strict environment in order to keep her from succumbing to her Byronic uh, tendencies. Oh, her mom's afraid that she's got that. Because back then they had this very kind of romantic view of genetics. Like, I hope she doesn't have her father's ev- you know, evil eye or whatever. And that was very so much she, true. So she's trying to use the parallelograms to stave off. Uh, her daughter's dark side, must, which must be somewhere in her. Uh, well, and, and Lady Byron was no loving mother. She uh, she mostly uh, sort of offshored the responsibilities of raising the child to her own mother, and at one point, and you know, would write letters encouraging her to be uh, to be kept under tight wraps and and be given a scientific education. Uh, at one point in a letter, even referring to her daughter as it, you know, like I, I had to sit with it for a while and that's the last time I want to deal with it for a long time. Please ask your child their pronouns. <laughs> don't, don't just assume it's an I, it. I don't believe it is, uh, is anyone's the, first choice. I'm not the best choice. dad, but I have never made that mistake. Uh, is this just because she's rich, by the way, that she's outsourcing the, uh, the upbringing or is she really, is it, maybe it's part of her anger at. At Byron? Well, in fact, Lady Byron maintained even in her then lifelong separation because Byron never returned. He died at the age yeah. of 36 from disease. He never he saw sick. Ada again. Maybe people learn from Byron's example, and that's why nobody's fighting fighting foreign wars. Yeah, but but uh but but Lady Byron never never um abandoned being called Lady Byron and and sort of held a torch for for oh, Byron for the rest of her life. He dies and suddenly there's an upside to having been briefly married to this, you know, brief comet. And she believed, uh, she believed at one point, I think she said that having married her, because she still was obsessed with saving his soul. And she believed that mar- having married her, a devout woman, maybe was Byron's path to, to, uh, to the ever- a- afterlife. <laughs> but Ada became kind of a prodigy of her time, and because of her position as um, as the daughter of a very romantic figure and also uh, aristocrats, and having had this education, she was introduced to 
a lot of the foremost thinkers of her time. In particular, Charles Babbage, who was a uh, like a tremendous polymath of the era, working across all the sciences, a sort of Leonardo da Vinci figure, who again had had yet to, or or rather was not a specialist, worked in math and natural science, but also he was a polemicist and ran for public office was a was a difficult figure that that made a lot of enemies and in in many cases his work was subverted by uh by his personal relationships with people he ran for um he ran for parliament two times in 1832 he came in third out of five which i felt a real simpatico with because <laughs> when i ran for seattle city council i was third of five but then he ran a second time and came in last of four, uh, so I, I didn't that make a cautionary, that mistake. That's, yeah. not a, that's a cautionary tale yeah, for you. I didn't want I didn't want that result. Although I think I could have done better if I'd run again. But he was a you know he was kind of a, a, a difficult public character, but also one that made several advances in science. The difficulty was of the sort that at one point he railed against. Uh, organ grinders. He felt like organ grinders were That's a powerful enemy. They'll stick their monkeys on you. Yeah, they, but they were really disturbing kind of the workforce with their with their screeching organ grinding. And then he really came out uh, against um, hoop rolling, which he <laughs> Wait, is hoop rolling the thing with the stick in the hoop yeah, that the we stick were talking in the hoop. about. Like all the children were out in the streets rolling hoops. And he felt like it was a danger to horses. So he's just some old guy writing letter. Dear editor, yeah. I see from my window another dirty child with his hoop. Allow me to remind you my opinions on the subject. But he was a he was a well known uh, polemicist. So he wrote big long papers, and I think was. But he's a crank. Yeah, he was resoundly mocked. Uh, but but he did many. He had many other advancements. And Does that he, mean that he's got all these genius ideas, but they're not getting funded because everyone is like, I don't want to work he's with the, that guy. He's the hoop roller. That's right. He was extremely influential um, on, you know, as figures as prominent as John Stuart Mill and and Karl Marx, hmm. because he had a lot of theories of production. Oh, yeah, everybody's a philosopher back then. Too. That's right, and it was, and this was the dawn of the uh, people were just formulating the ideas of specialization within the workplace. So he was one of the first people to suggest that if you had skilled workers within a factory context and unskilled workers, you should divide the labor so that the skilled workers could focus exclusively on work that that was worth their higher salary. And this was a novel it's hard notion. Hard to imagine. Yeah. You come from an agrarian background where everybody does everything until it gets dark. Right. It's it's different. And he went to observe factories and saw that there were these, you know, super great craftspeople who were also sort of chopping wood to stoke the fire to work their machines. And he was sort of one of the, the first to make this suggestion. This, tur- this turns into that efficiency movement. Yeah, where it will becomes be- obsessed became with the Babbage your- rule or right. the Babbage observation. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Hi, it's The Herd. This just in. It's officially fall, and that means a lot of things to a lot of people. The leaves are changing colors. Time to break out the pumpkins, break out the football, and most importantly, break out the truly hard seltzer. Truly has only 100 calories, but has 5% ABV and only one gram of sugar per container. It's the can't-miss drink of the season, so pick up Truly Hard Seltzer today. 
truly drink what you truly want. Charles Babbage also was working on uh, a very early version of a mechanical computer. Don't say it. Oh, okay, we got away nope, with it. Nope, she didn't. She didn't light up. <laughs> uh, he built or he designed something called. By, by the way, I'm very used to talking to uh, about computers, and and some 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 woman does not light up. <laughs> this, this happens to me all the time. <laughs> I will give you a laugh for that. Uh, he he designed and set about to build uh, a device called the Difference Engine, which was essentially a an early computer in the sense that they were that he he identified the fact that mathematical computations could be broken down just as the difficulty in in um in the supply chain of a of a business or the the workflow of of a an a, a, an industrialized process he understood that math math could be broken down into simpler and simpler chains of computation so that if you took a complicated problem, you could have a, a few mathematicians reduce that down to a great number of simpler problems. And then another layer of mathematicians could then break that down into a large number of simple computations. And you could hire then unskilled people to do simple mathematics and the combination of their work could then be recombined to answer these much larger trigonometric problems. Right. You're, you're trying to calculate some engineering thing. You're building a bridge or whatever. Right. And it, and mostly the computations were you could do the, you could do the brute force at a, at a, a more distributed level so that your high math thinkers didn't have to sit and just, you know, crunch through. Is it essentially a pocket calculator? Are, are they, is he using it the same way we would do that? Like this, this is, thing will do arithmetic for me. This was the idea. Okay. Uh, but then that the, this thing could be used to calculate um, it, increasingly more complicated problems depending on the inputs that you fed into it. You could do, you could eventually do square roots and stuff like that right. as long as you built it together out of simpler processes. And he had, he'd been granted a lot of government grants to build this machine. Uh, but, but he kind of, Again, was um, was a complicated enough figure that the difference engine never really uh, never was completed, and he started to work on a more advanced version of it called his analytical engine, which um, which he was building in he was designing, but it was maybe above the. The it it was an extremely complicated machine and not one that he could just throw together. It would have been very expensive to build. It would have requ- required industrial tolerances of a of a minute nature. On, on paper, he can get it to work, but what he's not sure is if you can get gears to actually do the thing that he has outlined. And he thought he could. He just couldn't afford to build it ah. and didn't have the support of the. Although he was a, a renowned scientist. His crankitudeness kind of kept him out of fashion in the in the arenas where people were pouring money into new developments. That's what you get. You got to be nice to organ grinders on the way up, or they're just going to kick you on the way down. Right. Well, Ada Lovelace, who uh, by this point had married, 
Um, and what, and presumably Mr. Lovelace, she did, she did. Uh, she married the Baron Lovelace. Oh, he's some titled guy. I guess he was. Is Linda, is Linda Lovelace their descendant? Deep, uh, deep throat. She's not, although they had three children. Um, and those three children, uh, I mean, it's a fascinating, basically if you research any, any person that is connected to any one of these characters, it, uh, you will find eventually a sordid tale of insects, uh, incest, dissolution, madness, and uh, death by disease. I just want depravity. <laughs> it's really in, in my science uh, stories. If we think about the Victorian era as one that is well, that's very prim and proper and devoid of sex, we are misjudging at least what the what the upper classes were up to. If they had just stuck to their parallelograms, yeah. uh, everything would have been fine. But Ada was uh, was a sort of a, I guess a fan of Babbage and a correspondent of his. And ended up being um, being very involved in the work he was doing, and understood more than Babbage or any of the contemporaries, any of his contemporaries, that this machine was capable of more than number crunching. She started to understand that a machine that uh, a machine of this kind could work in the fields of. Uh, of music and of uh, exploring natural laws. She saw that, that you could vary the inputs to such a degree that, that it would do computations of all manner. He didn't realize what a flexible thing he'd created. He didn't. And none of his contemporaries did. And her fame is uh, oddly predicated not on, um, not on an essay she wrote, you know, and, and in part this is because it probably would have been a harder sell for her to, uh, to come out with her own sort of diegesis. As a, as a woman? As a woman. Uh, and as a, you know, although she was, she was uh, regarded as a, as a polymath in her own right and, uh, and an accomplished sort of uh, woman of science – she most famously translated a paper, a fairly short paper, written by an Italian by the name of Luigi Menabrea, who uh, within Italy had been a kind of famous engineer of the, of the military, someone who was part of this European class of people who would have been exposed to the work of Babbage and had thoughts and feelings about it, who would write – sort of accompanying papers, either denouncing it or or supporting it, encouraging it within this cultural class. But English is not yet a universal lingua franca of right. the academic world. So you don't, nobody in England knows about this stuff until somebody who knows Italian translates it. And Menabrea w- went on to an illustrious career. He actually became uh, a prime minister of Italy. Oh. But he wrote this paper and it was given to, uh, to Ada to translate. Or she... She rather pursued the the goal of translating it, and she was an educated woman and could speak Italian and various other languages. And so in translating his his supportive essay, she added her own notes and in the process wrote – I mean her notes are quite a bit longer than his essay. Mm. So it is kind of a way to get her thoughts out there in a more legitimate way. Her notes became – Famous in their own right for uh, for describing the process by which you would 
utilize this machine, Teach, Babbage's machine. You're teaching it a series of steps. She she was writing the algorithms to um, to exploit the possibility of this machine be above and beyond what any of the other thinkers of her time had even considered. And in that regard, her fame her her fame at the time was kind of um, was kind of assured, but she became then, in, in later years, in the twentieth century, not the late twentieth century, as we started to look back in time to 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 put together a story of mechanical computation and how computers evolved and where our ideas of their capabilities. Basically, started. it's how the world changed. Right, right. Now that we're suddenly in this digital era, um, and she is. I think now widely regarded as one of the first computer programmers, if not the first. And and predictably, um, there are a lot of people who want to contest that that uh, that she invented this. And they'll it's you a know, slippery slope. She's she's advancing ideas a little bit, and then somebody you know she never actually programmed a computer, right? Did did she ever work on Babbage's? His his analytical engine was never finished. His right? analytical engine was never finished, and his difference engine was never finished in his lifetime. Now, in the two thousands, uh, some of our computer scientists, uh, millionaire billionaire types, in conjunction with the uh, the government of the UK, actually completed a difference engine, and they did it using. Uh, technologies that would have been available in the 19th oh, century, okay. and the machine did work. So they confirmed Babbage is vindicated. Babbage was vindicated. He just been a little nicer to his neighborhood kids. And of course, it was you know it was a slow machine. It w- it would compute uh, an equation in three minutes time that a mathematician could probably work its work his way through or her way through in about an hour, With a, a minute and a half, yeah. right? Um, but work right now is ongoing in building the analytical engine, which is so difficult to build that it's been, I mean, uh, it's, it's underway now and it's suggested it'll be, it'll be finally constructed in, in, uh, in 2021. It's like the nerd equivalent of civil war reenacting if that's not already nerdy enough. Right. Well, that's right. Computer reenacting, and presumably they will run some of, uh, or they'll they'll run some algorithms through it that Ada Lovelace pioneered. I, I have an Ada story. Oh, when I started uh, studying computer science uh, at the here at the University of Washington, I taught in many. You know, when I taught an introductory CS class later, I taught it in Pascal, mm-hmm. which is a good language to learn on because it's so formally structured that, um, you know, students see their errors very easily. It's easy for the compiler to tell you exactly what you did wrong. Some of the things you want as an experienced programmer are not what you want in an educational language. But at University of Washington, we were all, all the uh, early classes were taught in the same language, uh, which had been developed by the Defense Department. Uh, They wanted a, a, a variant of Pascal that was their own. And of course, it was designed by committee because it was the Pentagon and it had to do hundreds of different things. So it turned into this very bloated boondoggle of a thing that nobody could even write a compiler for. But because it had, because it was the Pentagon's own way of doing things, uh, it caught on and it was based on Pascal. So it was not a bad first language for somebody to learn. And it was called Ada as a nod to Ada Lovelace, whose whose, uh, legacy had kind of recently been unearthed. And so I learned to program on a language called Ada, which this was in the, its dying years. This was, would have been in the early 90s, about the same time the Pentagon decided, actually, this doesn't work. We're going to let our vendors program in whatever they want. 
Right. Well, I mean, having been on uh, some some battleships recently um, as a result of being Seattle's King Neptune. Is it still 80s era code? Uh, well, no, it's they all run Windows 7. <laughs> Don't tell our enemies this, John. <laughs> and the password is probably password. I mean, if you go if you go up to the bridge of a of a, like a warship now, you, the 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 high tech screens that are running all their all the navigation and all the weapon systems they have that Windows Seven like, uh, like hold screen. I've definitely been somewhere like a jumbotron or a Times Square type thing where something crashed and you could see Windows XP rebooting. And I was thinking, really, Windows XP? So anyway, like the you know the Pentagon quickly abandoned NATO, but for uh, Ada, but for I don't know five to ten years that was kind of their standard. And what's worth what's worse is, you know, all of our. NATO allies were using our tech, right. which meant that we made all the NATO countries program in ADA, this awful language. Anyway, years later, right after I was on Jeopardy, I ran into a, a, a writer named A.J. Jacobs. Mm-hmm. Do you know or know of A.J.? I've heard the name. He's an Esquire editor. Yeah. And uh, he wrote a series of books. He had a lot of success kind of with this genre of kind of gimmicky journalism where you... Uh, the journalist himself, kind of George Plimpton style, does something unusual. Uh-huh. You know, he has a book where he obeys every law in the Bible in order. He has a book where he goes through his own genealogy and tries to find if he's related to everyone he meets. You know, kind of these first-person experiential stuff. And he had just finished his first book, I think, which was where he read the Encyclopedia Britannica back-to-back just to see what it would do to him. And it turned out it made him just very annoying at parties. Uh, but I met him cause he was, you know, I had just been on Jeopardy. He wanted to write a piece about how he thought he was the smartest guy, but no, there's this guy. And, uh, he, uh, I asked him, we, you know, I asked him if he knew any, he, he was like, why don't you quiz me? Like I knew some trivia fact. And he was like, why he said, why don't you quiz me? Uh, ask me a trivia fact about something, you know, well, and I said, well, I'm a computer programmer. Do you know any programming trivia? And he, he, he said, oh, I did. Did you know? that the very first computer programmer was called was Ada Lovelace, and she was the daughter of the poet Lord Byron. And I was very excited. I always like the connection that gets created between two people when you know something in common. Right. You know, you meet somebody and they say they're from, uh, you know, Sarasota, Florida, and you know something about circus culture in Sarasota, Florida, or whatever it is, and or you know something about their alma mater or their major or their family or whatever. It's, you know, it's a, it's a way to create a bond between people. So I was very excited. I was like, oh, no, that's amazing. I, I, I do remember that because, uh, like, when I was learning how to code, the very first language I used was called Ada, and it was named for Ada Lovelace. And I thought we had had a little bonding moment, but AJ was just crestfallen. Because he he wanted to blow your mind? and, and- Yeah, he, he felt like he this had been a peeing contest, and I didn't know. That, and he had just been one-upped. He was like, oh, I didn't... Uh, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. Like, you win. So I failed in my effort to befriend AJ Jacobs. He thought I had just been trying to do some kind of a a tr- trivia <laughs> measuring contest that I didn't I didn't even know we were in. Well, Ada um you know, Ada's paper was kind of destabilized Babbage a little bit. He was threatened by her um by her kind of wide-ranging understanding of his of his work I mean, oh he felt like he'd been one up like he, aj jacobs or he he did he tried to at one point he tried to append his signature to her to her notes Boo. as though it were a co-authored Boo. uh but he he took that back i mean he they they ended uh they ended friends 
And she very, uh, I think, also crucially denied that uh, that the that the analytical machine could ever develop its own intelligence. She was somebody. People were already talking about that. Yeah, huh? she she Skynet. She wrote about AI and said that uh, that it wasn't a possibility that the the machine would always be uh, simply working um, as as a servant. And well, never as a master. Yeah, I mean, as a 19th century person, you would think, no, it, it, it cannot be ensouled. You know, whatever right. mystical thing happens in my brain because of the finger of God cannot happen to a difference engine. Right. She did suffer somewhat from her father's romanticism and engaged um, in various sort of uh, love affairs and um, and perhaps... Uh, deviated from her marriage. So Anne was right. Yeah, that's she, right. She did have the uh, the cursed Byronic genes. She was a person who um, who had no share or no no small share of of scandal in her own life, but tragically died at the age of thirty six of uterine cancer, which turned out to be uh, the same age that her father died of inf- of fever or infection in the. The Greek Civil War. This is like rock stars all dying at at twenty seven. At twenty seven, yeah. Nineteenth century scientists all die at age thirty six. But she, um, although she never met her father again, she was somewhat obsessed with him throughout her life, and and partly I think it was that his exotic name conferred upon her a certain social stature. People would talk behind their fans when yeah. she walked into her room. Well, but also, I mean, he was because he was dead. Uh, he he went from being a scandalous figure to a to a fascinating ex- yeah, one, exclusively yeah. a fascinating one. Yeah. So um, so tragically, her life was cut short. But but as you say, uh, her legacy lives on, and I think grows with time because her. Well, I I mean I can't wait to see her her programs run on the analytical engine when it's finally completed. And that concludes Ada Lovelace, entry 737.PR3118, certificate number 46507. I should put that in binary for Ada, but I'm not going to. In the omnibus. Listeners, one of uh, the worst effects of the computer age uh, was social media, for which I blame Ada Lovelace. It's probably the curse of Lord Byron. It's probably the incestuous curse of Lord Byron working its way down through two centuries of computer code until we get Facebook. I hadn't thought of it, but you're right. The That's our original sin. Social media is the is the basically the syphilis of our time. <laughs> I mean, you know, also she gave us things that are good, like uh, I can pay my bills online and, and Pac-Man. But, uh, but there was social media as well. Uh, just an awful, awful thing to do to your brain. Um, if, if that is still a weakness of yours in your age, you should know that... Uh, I was at Ken Jennings on Twitter. John was at John Roderick on Twitter and Instagram. We were jointly at Omnibus Project. Please follow if that still exists. Um, There was a Facebook group while we're dwelling on the atrocities of Mm. social media Mm. uh, called the Futurelings. Although our Futurelings group is not one of the atrocities. It's 100% atrocity free. It is the Florence Nightingale of of the... The Civil War of Facebook. It's just people posting pictures of Quonset huts and moose. Yes. Well, and other things too. Mail trucks, 
and uh, raccoons. There's been a real mail truck decline and a real Quonset hut boom. Well, I, I support it. I, but I but I feel like uh, photo mat huts are the thing that I that I log on for. You think that's the future of the? Uh... Inshallah. <laughs> Uh, you could also send us digital communication, which was called electronic mail. Hmm. Uh, you would do that by typing the address theomnibusproject at gmail.com into your address line, and that would uh, reach us through a magical process I do not fully understand, even though I'm a CS major. Uh, I do understand how the U.S. mail works. I've seen the trucks. Uh, if you have physical artifacts to share with us, like the 50-year-old harmonica that, that John has in front of him, mm-hmm. do, you, do you want to play us something, John? Yeah. Let's see what let's see what we get out of here. Is this the first time it's been played in decades? Nice. I'm a terrible uh, harmonic harmonic assist. Please, please send us weird old stuff. This this uh, so that really John smells can, like old potpourri or uh, like a like an old man's waistcoat. Send us weird smelling stuff. It'll John needs entertainment in his boxcar where he lives. Uh, <laughs> you can send all that to. The Omnibus Project, P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I was just reading uh, our friend John Hodgman's new book. Oh, yeah. And he was talking about how people, uh, he wants people to send him, uh, give him drugs, and no one ever gives him drugs. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, he has for a long time been sort of doing that, uh, I'm I'm a middle-aged guy, but I'm not... I'm not going gently into this good night. I want edibles. Yeah, so like figure it out. Uh, I will do the pot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you've ever been around him when he's had a couple of gin martinis and a little bit of the pot. Oh, boy, yeah. He also complains about people buying him gin because they don't know the right brand. Yeah, no. It, it, you, uh, you, need to get it, you need to get it straight. We are not picky like Mr. Hodgman. Right. Uh, we don't want gin and edibles, but we do want your harmonicas. Uh, you could. I did not mention Reddit. There's a there's a Reddit like Futurelings subreddit. Oh, and uh, if you want to show your support for the omnibus, really in the only language that matters to us in the 21st century, capitalism, uh, you can do so by accessing the many perks and privileges that uh, that donors and patrons get um, by pledging at Patreon.com/slash/omnibusproject. Futurelings. Do not buy John Hodgman Tangeray. He will drink uh, Bombay Sapphire, but uh, but I believe he prefers. God, what was the gin that he's always ordering? I feel like is Beefeater his his second choice? His no, backup? no, it's uh, he wants. Oh, it's uh, it's not Gordon's. No, no, it's um. What is it? Some This is the real information that matters for the future. Even if all other information does not survive. Nope, nope, nope. Is it well, Plymouth? No. Oh. Let me let me uh I'll just text him right now and we'll see we'll see if he, he gets back to me. By uh, the time you're done with the outro? Uh yeah, we'll see. I mean, you know. What is your Gin brand again, and I'm not outing him. Like this is uh, no, no, no. This, this is, happens this is, all the time, is, and this is stuff he just put in his book about how he's yeah. he's angry. Well, that, the thing is, I, that I, fans will not give him the correct. Gifts. I sit with him at the bar, and he always orders it. And about about half the time, the person, the bartender, says we don't have that, and then he goes to his his second choice. It's uh oh. Well, anyway, he's not replying right away. 
So it, and ultimately, it doesn't matter. But don't you know? Don't get him that other stuff. This is not information that will be lost, lost to the ages. <laughs> Um, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization uh, survived or whether or not the Omnibus Project itself maybe was the engine that began the, the, the era of destruction. How, 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 how would that happen? What, what mechanism are you imagining, envisioning here? Well, that's the thing. I mean, you are... You, you, it's a domino. You built the analytical engine, and I'm saying maybe there's some poetry here. Maybe maybe the song of Omnibus is the thing that that starts the, uh, the music of the spheres uh, oscillating too fast. Maybe we're just making the end of the world sound a little too good. Hmm. It, it starts to become too popular and appealing an idea. Interesting. Um... We hope and pray that we are not the agents of this catastrophe. We certainly apologize if we were. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may have been our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. travel to recover from heartbreak to trace your dna escape the internet on our podcast a way to go we've been exploring all the reasons we travel i'm gerilyn gerba i'm pavia rosati and together we're the founders of travel website fathom and we've already heard so many great stories such as an actress in rural kenya explaining the ins and outs of safe sex a graffiti artist tagging the islands of southeast asia a producer arranging high fashion photo shoots in the desert listen to a way to go on the iHeartRadio app on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts